Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? Have you been wallowing in human misery like everyone else seems to have been? Well, I suppose like everyone else I've been. <laughs> I suppose taken aback is a very small way of putting it, but as I was saying to you before we started, just mired in a recognition that given the right circumstances, we are basically shaved apes. And if you put people in the in a position where they are allowed to do whatever they want to do, that it turns out that sometimes they want to do very, very awful things indeed, and glory in them. It's been pretty horrific. Almost like, Michael, people of all political stripes actually have a lot of very unpleasant impulses and desires, which society should work to channel into productive forms that don't involve beating open your neighbour's skull with a rock and eating the gooey goodness inside. I think that's a, that's a fairly decent analysis right there, Gary. I think lots of very big, heavy social chains. Social chains, religious chains, cultural chains, but we need to be chained, Gary. We need to be chained. As they say, a man is only free in measure to the chains he puts upon his own appetites. That sounds like one of your stoic friends to me. That was actually Burke, Michael. Was it? Was, well, Burke was... They were big into the Stoics, weren't they? The Stoics of the Romans, Cicero and Seneca and all that group. So we are, of course, talking about the what, well, what is rapidly becoming the Israel-Hamas war, which then has the likelihood of becoming the Israel-many-other-people war, and then becoming the Israel-plus-many-people-versus-many-other-people war. And I just wanted to put this up front so that people are aware of this. I have my own views on this situation. I'm sure Michael does as well. Most of our listeners probably have views in certain ways. We're going to try and go through this talking less about what is morally right or what is legally right and more about the actual balance of power and the things that are possible. It will be, Michael, an actively, for the most part, amoral conversation. We are not, when we're discussing what should happen, saying, or what could happen, saying that that is a good or bad thing, unless we explicitly say it. And I just want to put this up front, because with conversations like this, where it's highly emotive and quite tribal, there is a certain assumption that if someone says something is what's going to happen, or what could happen, or is a solution, that they think that that is a morally good thing. And that's not where we're coming from. It's generally not where I come from ever, but I just wanted to make it explicit. Then again... You are listeners to this show, therefore I assume you are all adults who understand this. But, you know, there's always one. <laughs> always one. Uh, a mutual friend of ours I was chatting to during the week did speculate on, on, on this, the future. And he said, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, God, I hope this doesn't turn into the Third World War. And he cheerily observed to me, you know what, Michael, I think it already is the Third World War. Yes, but he's a pessimist. I, yeah, not normally. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, God knows where this is going to end. And I say God knows, I mean, if God's there, he knows nobody else. So we mentioned last week that we weren't going, going to go into it because when we were recording, the Hamas offensive had just started and it wasn't clear how that was going to go. Now, the results of that offensive have been circulating on social media for about the last week and you're now starting to see the results of Israeli bombing and what appears to be preparation for a ground invasion into Gaza also starting. There is some talk that the Israelis began to go into Gaza on Friday night and doing raids 
bringing ground troops in. We are recording this on Saturday, so if Sunday comes and, you know, something horrible has happened, we may have missed that, as is our, I think at this point, tradition, Michael. Yeah, something new horrible. Plenty of horrible stuff has already happened, but some even more horrible stuff, yes. So there has been quite a lot of talk about this, I think, from all sides. This was a highly emotive, highly politicised and tribal discussion before there was the chance of this happening. So that's not going to get any better. Probably going to get substantially worse before it gets better. It's been interesting to see the positions that certain people have taken on this. Interesting to see the position that certain media outlets have taken on this. There seems to be a um, a general, shall we say, Michael, uncertainty where this is going. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in fact... One of the first questions that occurred to me, when, when the, the full grotesqueness of what had gone on started to become clear, and not just that, but also the, the scale of it. I mean, the numbers of people who had been, had been murdered, the number of people who had been injured, the number of people who had been taken hostage, etc. I mean, this was a very, very big attack it was a large scale large plan i mean also by the way gary it would seem to be an incredible failure on the behalf of the israeli intelligence services who have historically had a very high reputation in the world but i kept on thinking why are they what is the point of this what unless there is a thing which you're very aware of gary listening about a thing called accelerationism which exists on all the extreme politics of countries all over the world where people who live with a kind of an apocalyptic view of the history, who believe that things have become so awful that the only way to, to, to deal with the, the reality, the current reality, is just to, to burn the thing down to start again. So they engage in what's called accelerationism, which is you accelerate. So, for example, in the United States, groups uh, that like back in the day, right back to the days of Charlie Manson and, and the Manson family and all that with the, with the idea of precipitating a, a race war which would basically just destroy America and then it, the thing could be rebuilt in justice. That this might be some kind of an accelerationist act that they would provoke, they would be, they would do something so horrible that it would provoke Israel into a response which was so awful that this would inevitably induce a reaction from the rest of the Arab world which would then start to involve the United States and Europe and Russia and all everybody else and basically this would induce the apocalypse and while all that sounds very it's it's worth remembering that was it President Ahmadinejad the previous president of Iran uh, was quite convinced that we were at the point of uh, the return of the Majid and it was part of the duty of the devout man to try and precipitate the coming shall we say of the apocalypse in order that justice could reign so i or i may, may even if you take the theology the eschatology out of it maybe it was a political act that this would induce in israel's a reaction so awful that it would ultimately lead to the demise of israel because of a military response by the rest of the arab world in defense of the palestinians now i'm I don't know. None of us know who can. I'm sceptical about how invested the rest of the Arab world is about the fate of the Palestinian people. 
I think on that, the Palestinians have been useful to a number of the Arab countries over the years. And there has been effectively an operationalization of the Palestinian struggle, as it were. Now, a lot of these countries absolutely do not want Palestinians inside their own borders, because that happened in the mid-century. And the Palestinians were pretty keen to destabilize any country they got into in that region in order to further their own struggle. So that's not going to happen again. You see that with Egypt now, with a lot of... Here are some very nice sounding words, but by God, you are not getting across that border. Well, some nice sounding words, but some fairly plain language as well. When when the Egyptians were asked, I mean, and it is worth pointing out when we talk about the blockade of uh, of Gaza and you know the 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 entrapment, the imprisonment of the Palestinians. That Egypt does have a border there that the Egyptians could open. The Egyptians also have a wall, which is what two walls, in fact which was described on uh, social media as being one of steel, which is 20 foot high and 20 foot deep, which is a fairly substantial piece of operational uh, protection. And the president of Egypt, is it Sisi? Is he the president? I can't. Said basically, listen, my, fir- the f- my first responsibility, the first responsibility of the Egyptian government is the security of uh, Egypt. The strong implication, if not implication, more than that explicit statement was that no, we're not letting this because we think this would destabilize the security of our country. The Jordanians, if you've seen, have pretty well made their own statement by the way they've reacted along their own borders. Uh, you know, the notion that somebody might come through Jordan and come to, no, they're not. Jordanians are not engaging in that kind of thinking. Well, uh, the Jordanians, I think, are some of the least surprising because, as, as you remember, Michael, the uh, the killing of um, King Abdullah the first. Yes, uh, that was by a Palestinian. You had Black September, which was the war between Jordan under I think at the time King Hussein, and the PLO, the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization. That would have been Yasser Arafat. So, like, there are some pretty complicated relationships in this region. There's obviously ethnic, there's tribal, there's religious. It is a mess of a region at the best of times. What happens now is going to be quite interesting. You were talking there about accelerationism, Michael. There was an argument being made that Iran had basically pushed for Hamas to do this and supplied operational aid in order to slow down the rate of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which the United States has been pushing for for a long time. Israel has become more favored in the region over the last few years because other, uh, certain of its neighbours have wanted to effectively counter the rise of Iranian power. Yes. So the rise of Iran has actually been quite good for Israel in the region. And the, the argument was that this was Iran basically trying to correct that balance. Now, that's a bit of an issue because if Iran is involved, then Hezbollah is involved and Hezbollah can uh, do things that wouldn't be done if it was you know, a direct state's military. I did hear someone saying that Hezbollah actually represents an existential threat to Israel because if Israel goes south to try and deal with Gaza, then Hezbollah will invade from the northern parts of the country and effectively try and destroy Israel. We would best hope that that is not true because Israel is a nuclear-equipped state and nuclear-equipped states have found that they have a very good response to existential threats. In this case, turning Tehran into a radioactive crater. Which is not... Uh, an end devoutly to be wished. No. So what I would suspect will happen is 
the Israels have been pretty upfront what they will do if they think that the existence of the state is actually threatened. So that's kind of a known quantity. I suspect America will try and step in with Iran to limit Hezbollah's involvement, in which case that clears Israel to push south pretty much as much as they want. What they will do, I think, is is very much open to debate, but that there are certain realities, I think, give us an idea of what's about to happen. One is that this is an incredible intelligence failure of Israel, as you said, Michael. There are now reports coming out, <clears throat> there are now reports coming out that said that certain warnings were given to the Israeli uh, intelligence services and that the decision uh, not to react appropriately to those was political or, um, well, effectively meaning that is, is Netanyahu's fault. Now, the exact nature of the intelligence that was given over and the exact nature of the response that this Israel decided was appropriate is unknown. But Netanyahu is inside Israel, from the polling I've seen, widely believed to be responsible for the failure to stop this. Yeah. And a large amount of the population want him gone on that basis. So if Netanyahu wants to stay in power, he needs to deal with this in a way that makes people who are critical of him now support him. And Netanyahu is incredibly capable uh, as a political operator. So the question becomes, Michael, how do you respond to this in a way which will give you the allegiance of the Israeli citizenry. And I would suspect the answer to that is you respond pretty brutally. Yes, that will be the instinct. And that will be understand. I think for thee and for me to sit where we are sitting and to try and speculate on what possibly could be a correct response or no, let, let's leave aside. And I don't think we should in an absolute sense, leave aside the, the, the issues around a legal response or a, a moral response or a proportionate response. But let's just simply think about what might be a useful response. I think that's an incredibly difficult question. What will be a useful response? What is a response which isn't simply a response which is a way of expressing the anger and the grief and the fear that the people of Israel feel, but is also useful? in that it advances their security rather than diminishes their security. I think the question here, one of the, the questions here, is how much they care about the response to what they do. Mm. Because if they feel that they've been pushed far enough, that they don't care what the response is, certain arguments will start coming to the top as you know permanent solutions to this issue. Saudi Arabia has already announced that it's halting its normalization process with Israel. It's hard to tell where Saudi actually falls on this because Saudi has always had a public face. Well, not always, but most of the time, a public face that's quite pro-Palestinian, but they've been happy to do deals behind closed doors. So there will be a question there. But if Saudi has actually decided that they are going to, for the foreseeable future, stop the normalization process... And therefore, there's no risk of losing the process because it's already been lost for the time being. That, I think, makes things a bit easier for Israel. There is a lot of talk, Michael, about the need not to breach uh, the law laws of war to keep things human rights compliant. I don't think that's going to be a terribly big concern uh, in this war. Well, it won't be at the beginning. I don't know. I, I, I... For, as regards the Saudis, and not just the Saudis, but across 
the region generally. We have heard for many years a lot about the, what they call the Arab street. And we recognize that most, pretty well all of these regimes are regimes which are to some degree, more or less, themselves not completely stable. It's regimes that may have a consciousness that they are not concrete set. And therefore they have to be aware of the reaction of the population of the street to what they're doing. But what their public statements are going to be and what their private communications with Israel will be and their actions in real in the real world will be. Like if you're I don't know if it was the sixty seven war or the seventy three war when Jordan was one of the belligerents against Israel. It was a belligerent. But behind the scenes it was basically saying to Israel, listen, we're we're coming in, but we're you know, we're not really coming in. You know, so let's let's not get too serious about this. You know, uh, the the difference between the public facing and the private facing can be very diff dis different. What they have to do tactically and how they think strategically maybe be very much at odds. Also, for us outside here, I'm not saying that of course it's horrible and shocking for the people in Israel that it is, but Israel has lived in a state of existential threat since its foundation. It was founded in whatever it was, May of 48, and then within a couple of months it was being, it was, first there was the, the rising and then there was the, the invasion, then there was the invasion in 67, then there was the invasion in 73. And it has so it's it's not that this is the first time that Israel has had to Israel or rather Israelis have had to sit back and think, what would we do if the if the country was facing an existential threat? I think that's something which has been part and parcel of being in in Israel and being in government and in politics in Israel since the foundation of the state. So it's not something that has it, it's not a new idea that they have to grapple with. This is something that they have always been mulling over at some stage either at the back of their minds or sometimes at the front of their minds so i i i think that they're in a, they're in a more they're in a more ready place to actually address how far they're willing to go and also israel whatever our friends on the left and some on the right probably but mostly in the team it seems at the moment on the left say about it, israel is a liberal democracy it has the the rule of law and it has opposition in fact, sadly and ironically, it seems to be the case that many of the people who were murdered, for example, in the, uh, the the music concert would have been people who would have been what were called peace activists, who would have been strongly critical of the government's attitude to Palestinians and the way it operates. And the, so that I, I, I don't, at the beginning, when the passion is high and the anger is deep, but as the thing progresses, I think that even within Israel there will be questions. But also, but I go back, leaving aside the moral issue, there will be questions about the utility of the nature of the response. What is the most useful response in the medium term? And that's, I have no clue. I mean, I'm not pretending I know an answer, but I, but I do think that it's, it's a question that they're going to ask themselves. And it's not necessarily obvious to me, for example, I mean, it may be the case. That going into Ham in, in, into Gaza, just rolling over all of the uh, the north of the of the of the Strip and just blowing everything up, destroying Hamas insofar as they think they can. Maybe that is going to be the thing that will produce the best long-term utility for their security and peace. But maybe it's not. I don't know. 
Well, I mean, there was an opposition. Now there's a unity government. Yeah. Gaza will be a fucking nightmare to get in on the ground. It's There is some farmland in it, but it's for the most part densely packed urban environments. Hamas have dug in. They've tunnel networks. It will be terrible. And you, the problem you have there is... You can't bomb your way out of a situation like that. No. You can bomb it to the dirt, but people will still be there. And then you need to go in and bombing may actually make it more difficult to deal with because they'll basically just turn the runes into a futuristic equivalent of Stalingrad. Oh, it absolutely will. I mean, if you're talking about some kind of full-scale infantry uh, advance into the territory and then a, a, a conquer and hold exercise, even for a period of time, doing the bombing will absolutely make it more difficult. So it'll be incredibly expensive. It'll be incredibly difficult logistically. And frankly, it will be impossible to run an operation like that without committing massive amounts of human rights violations. And also, Gary, you will, on the basis of the most recent experiences, I mean, it's not going to be like in, say, 67, the there is a decent chance you're going to be looking at some at very heavy casualties also. Yeah, it is It is somewhat of an open question of how well-equipped and trained Hamas troops are. They're understood to be decent, and they know the territory, so it won't be pleasant, but... Yeah, but Gary, even if they're only average or whatever, if you're an urban war taking place in rubble, as you're going from... You're going street by street by street, and you're, you're the offensive force... Just even if they're only poor, they're going to kill you. Yeah, the rubble will make it difficult to bring in any sort of armoured support as well. Other consequences of this. This could be quite damaging to the concept of the laws of war and of you know, a human right compliant war. Because given Hamas's tendency to use civilians effectively as shields and to base some of their attacks out of areas which are replete with civilians. I mean, one of Hamas's major bases in the area is under a hospital. It becomes very difficult to fight against that without killing a lot of civilians. Just for a moment, I mean, I don't know how useful it is, but for the purposes of illustration, again and again, during the war after the the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, Ukrainian authorities would, in advance of what they felt was going to be either Russian action or their own action, would order the local populations to leave, evacuate. And they would, those orders would become harder and harder until at, at times there was almost a forced removal at different times of populations. It was their absolute clear intent that you have to get out because otherwise we are, we are going to be bombing or they're going to be bombing. You have to get out. Now, we are told by what seemed to me to be pretty decent, reputable resources. First of all, number one, before the Israelis attack, they give warning to the civilian populations. They send radio, they send text messages, they drop, they send in uh, pamphlets, whatever, saying we are going to be attacking these areas, get out. And then at the same time, the authorities in Hamas tell the people, stay. Now, they will remove the military hardware if they can to save it, but the people will be left in. And it's like any situation, isn't it, Gary, with law? If you have one person who is held to the standard of law and wants, in some sense, to behave in a lawful manner, 
But you're up against somebody who doesn't give a flying fuck about law, but is perfectly willing to use the law to their own ends. Then you kind you're stuck. How how does that work? It's all very well to say, well, Israel has the right to defend itself, but it doesn't have the right to attack civilians. But if the belligerent against Israel is using these, I mean, and then you can, people say, oh well, it is also illegal to use human shields. It is illegal to put civilian populations into places which are being used as uh, centers of command or control or military operation. It is illegal to use schools or hospitals for that purpose. It's all very well to point that out, but who's going? I mean, what are they going to do? Are, are we are we going to send some kind of special operations unit from around the world into the Gaza Strip and lift the Hamas leadership out and take them off to the Hague and try them for crimes? Is that the plan? I think that touches on why I think this could actually be damaging to to some of the international norms and laws around this. International law, despite what its advocates like to say, does not exist independently of the states. It exists because the states uh, assent to it. When it was just America running things, it was very easy because if America agreed with it, that was just how things are going to be. The problem here is... I do not see a way in which you can run an effective but compliant law against a force like Hamas under international norms. Yeah. So you either have to be ineffective or just breach them. And I think the more focus is put on that and the more international law advocates complain about these breaches of law, they are while they are right to do so, if the states come to the decision that these laws constrain them beyond what they deem acceptable, the laws will not work because there will be no one to ensure that they're adhered to. There are lots of interesting questions that you could say. Is, is Gaza a state? Is Hamas a government? How does that affect the way that Israel can engage with it? I mean, people are still debating, Gary, about whether or not the, the bombing of Dresden was a war crime. But it was certainly a fact, and that's, it is out of... The Second World War that the attitudes towards how we should legislate for war starts well it, it starts in the 19th century but then we have a big impetus after the Second World War about how we want to create rules for for war but if you have a if you have a nation which is at war with another nation and you're going to say it's okay for one nation in response in an act of self-defense to invade the other well then you have to accept that in some and I think okay, I'll baseline it like this and see what, what do you think of it. One of the problems is because we are so civilized and because in the West we have experienced such a long period of safety and security, both at a, a biological sense and at a, at a military and war sense, we find the, 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 the act of saying we recognize that it will be morally and legally acceptable in some sense to kill civilians in war, we find that incredibly difficult to say. But any war will involve that. Even a just war will inevitably involve the slaughter of, inverted commas, innocent people, I don't, invert, with or without the inverted commas. Civilians, innocent people will be killed, even in a just war. And I think we just find that idea very difficult. Now, Part of me says, you know what? It's laudable and correct and moral that we should have that hesitancy 
about endorsing the fact that people, innocent people will be killed. On the other hand, if <laughs> are we going to go the other direction and just say, well, we must abandon war, we must embrace our ongoing pacifism, complete pacifism, and just reject the notion of war at all? At which point, then I say that we are now living in uh, not a utopia, a utopia which will very very quickly become a dystopia. On the on the point about Dresden, you were making yes, there is an ongoing debate about that, um, and the RAF's part to play in that. And Bomber or Butcher Harris, as you might depend, and his uh, delight in that. A better example, I think, here might be Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I would argue that both were clearly and unambiguously war crimes, and that both were absolutely the right thing to do, morally and ethically, if not legally. Neither of them represented significant military targets. They were two cities which were chosen to be demonstrations of power, demonstrations of what we can do to you if you do not surrender. Absolutely. And they were chosen partially because they weren't military targets. Yeah. And a massive amount of civilians were deliberately killed with no way to fight back. I think probably more people died in the firebombings of Tokyo. But I think... Looking back, the uh, they were the right thing to do, clearly, which I think is a difficult thing for people to accept. Well, I suppose one of the problems here is that once you get to war, we have to recognize we are also now abandoning the normal moral universe that we live in, that we like to live in, that we want to live in. Just to, to be very banal and trivial about it, I, I remember a, 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 a scene from The West Wing, which was a, a favorite show of mine back in the day. And the United States, there's a debate about whether or not the United Nation, the United States should sign up to one of the international treaties, which would ultimately leave it open to the possibility that members of the United States government or military could actually be charged for war crimes in The Hague. And the character Leo is very much in favor of this. And uh, an old friend of his who's a general in the Air Force is very much opposed on principle to it. And they have a meeting and he informs Leo that back in the day when they were both young pilots flying in the Viet- in Vietnam, they were on a mission. And it turned out the mission wasn't in fact a military mission, but it was uh, going to destroy a dam which was going to lead to the destruction of villages and thousands of civilians would die. And it would have, it was a class, it would be perfectly, be easily described as a war crime. And in most of shock, he says, oh, well, why, why did you tell me this? And the general responds, why? Because all war is a crime. And that might sound a bit flip, but I think there's a deep truth to that. And the thing is, Gary, I don't know if you've noticed this. When you talk to people who are soldiers rather than politicians about war, they tend to be far more reticent about the use of military power, the use of the, the prospect of going to war than very often gung-ho politicians are, because they understand the nature of war. They understand the horrible nature of war in a way that civilians maybe don't. And civilians can feel safe because they're not going to actually either put themselves in the line of fire to kill, to be killed, or indeed, sometimes for some people, harder to kill. It's a, When we get to the point where we have so f- completely failed that we are at war, then we have to we, we acknowledge we are now in in a, in a new moral world we try and bring as much of the old world with us as we can but 
sometimes it just doesn't work out. I mean, the argument classically, you'd say there's no doubt about the, the morality of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The argument historically has been used that if you look at the way that Japan was militarized, the whole population was militarized, that the taking of the island of Japan would have led to casualties for the Americans running into the hundreds of thousands of possibly millions. And more than that, the death of millions of Japanese civilians. And therefore, on that, shall we say, rather simple but horrible equation, you can justify the And I think that's a strong argument. I Absolutely. I think it's a very strong argument. But there's an old idea in uh, Catholic theology, maybe in other people's theology, that an act can be both. It sometimes something can be can be wrong, can be evil, but not sinful. So Catholic theology would say the taking of a life is always evil, but it is not necessarily sinful. No, and, and I mean, an interesting point here. It's a commonly told story, but during World War One. The Americans, well, they still have an award called the Purple Heart. It's awarded to those wounded or killed while serving. Yes. And over, I think it was one and a half million of them were produced during World War II, with the majority of them for the expected losses during the invasion of Japan. To date, I think they're still working their way through the Purple Hearts that they had made based on how many people they thought were going to die taking Japan. So that is the context in which those nuclear weapons were used. But anyway, to bring us back to the to the current reality, yes, we're, we're, I think you're facing that kind of thing. Israel, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Israel feels that it is under an existential threat. Uh, and it's very hard to see precisely what Israel's options are. Uh, okay, we'll put it at a very basic level. Can Israel not react? I think politically they, they're going to have to. And they're gearing up to it. Like, it's, you, don't, you don't muster that many troops if you're not going to invade. It's too many for a show of force. Yeah. That is, we're going to send in large amounts of people in on the ground to do whatever we want to do. Um, it's a massive amount of troops. I, I think politically Netanyahu is going to have to do something. I think the reticence he might have there is that if you go in too heavily on the ground, as opposed to targeted killings and things like that, you could get bogged down. And then it's not the win he needs. It's a slow grinding affair, which is going to have massive casualties on both sides. There is, however, a conversation which is occurring among certain parts of Israeli society at the minute on which is basically working on the assumption that this is just not working. They've tried, it's not working, and now something needs to be done to settle this, um, if not permanently, at least within Israeli borders. And those people are moving in the direction of what would effectively be ethnic cleansing mm. to depopulate Gaza yeah. entirely, to force the people south, really wherever they can force them, and to basically merge Gaza back into Israel without a Palestinian presence there. That would be an incredible undertaking. To my knowledge, I can't think of any country in the Arab world which is willing to take them. 
That is a problem, Michael, yes. And the logistics of something like this would be unbelievable. The forced depopulation of millions of people uh, across Israel would be unbelievably difficult and unbelievably expensive. But it's not impossible. In the same way, Egypt has its borders closed. Mm -hmm. But Israel has other borders. Yes. And if if they really wanted to, they're absolutely committed to it, they could probably do it. And that's a bit of a problem, because if we're talking about human rights violations, that would be just an incredible scale of human rights violation. Problem we have now is that when these people are having this conversation, the question becomes, well, what other option do you have? What is the long-term solution to this? Or is it a case that we kill Hamas, we wait a couple of years, someone else rises, and this happens again? Is that how we want to do this? I mean, there's part of my head which goes to the notion of Netanyahu going to the United Nations, right? Standing in front of the General Council and saying, okay, lads, you don't want us to do this. You don't want us to do A or B or C. Fine. What should we do? And people will stand up, oh, well, we have to work for peace and peace is the answer. And we love, and we all, fine, grand, but how? I think there's a very simple reality here, which is this. Hamas and groups like it want from the river to the sea, Michael, to be free, which is to say Israel does not exist. And those Jews go somewhere, wherever that is, Uh, be that a geographical location or a metaphysical plane of existence. I think the metaphysical plane of existence is the first choice. So here's the point. And it's something I think that liberal democracies are exceptionally ill-equipped to deal with. If you have effectively an ethnic conflict in which two groups both believe that they should have the same land and both groups are willing to fight for it, even if one group is disproportionately stronger, what is the solution to that? Because there can't be two skies. Someone has to have that land. And... The concern there is that eventually the stronger group might just decide, you know, we're done with this. The problem, the problem, the reality is the liberal democracies have to some degree a certain kind of a fundamentally optimistic view about the possibility of evolution, change, reconciliation, education, all of these things changing. That ultimately people will make rational choices. And they will see that this this is not getting any better. In fact, it's only getting worse. And what we have to do is seek some kind of a compromise. So people draw the, a parallel between, say, the Middle East and the North of Ireland. But the fact is that by the time we got to the Good Friday Agreement, the energy that had fueled the violence in the 70s and the 80s had really started to dissipate because there was increasingly a sense that this isn't going anywhere. The opposite, in some sense, seems to be happening in the Middle East. The longer I mean, historians that I've read have say that, but 19 between 48 and by 1967, Palestinian nationalism was essentially a dead duck as a force, as an ideology, as as an idea. 
it, it becomes resurrected by the war in 67. But before that, it does, it, between 67 and 73, and then the expulsions and, and the exile and the, and the, the, the refugees recreate uh, the force. But it's another 50, we're on another 50 years now. And the, it, the energy is not dissipating. It's becoming more and more intense. So where if you're, if, all, the notions that we would have about, you know, compromise and rational choices don't seem to be working there for whatever reason. I think that's, that's one approach. You can make a different argument, which is that in certain situations, the rational choice is endless war. There is this assumption that rational choice means you hit a certain point and then go, you know, this is too bad. But when you look at what actually motivates people, at what they actually want to achieve, it's perfectly reasonable for certain people to have as their rational choice, we'll just fight until everyone's dead. Yeah, we confuse our what we consider to be a rational choice and what other people might say is a rational choice. Von Mises, in a completely different world context, Von Mises talk, says that, that economically people act in their own interests and people have criticised him for that. We say, no, they don't. And very often people make bad choices. And Von Mises' reaction would be, yes, they do. If you're talking about their choices that are going to make them economically better off or economically more secure or produce higher standards, whatever. But he said, but when they make those choices, they, that might not be what is motivating or driving them. When they make their choice, that is the choice that they see is in their best interest. You've made the point before, Gary, that in low trust societies, low trust cultures, make, the rational choice may not be raising yourself up but pulling somebody else down. One thing I will say that has come out of this, I think, is an increased acceptance that the one-state solution is just dead. And to be fair, it's been dead a long time. People just held on to that belief. The two-state solution, I don't see Israel going for that. When they pulled out of Gaza in 2005, the understanding was, we'll pull out, we'll let you self-rule, and we'll see how things go. The idea was, remove their forces in exchange for peace. That has not worked. And following something like this, I don't see Israel going, yes, what we want is for you to have an enhanced state, which is on equal footing to us, from which stuff like this can happen. Because again, the goal of these groups is the non-existence of Israel. Yeah. So yeah. if this... If there is no option, if the one-state solution doesn't work and the two-state solution doesn't work, politically the question becomes, is it better to kill the group and just wait and see if this keeps happening, or is it better to get rid of all these people to wherever? I mean, sorry, just go back to the question you're talking about the problems that sort of the liberal democratic worldview has with situations like this. I remember having debates, with, well, debates, discussions with people. Do you, do, do you remember the Arab Spring, Gary? Fondly. And I had friends who were terribly enthusiastic, and, and God bless them. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, it's nothing wrong with a little bit of hope or optimism that some things, you know, some things can get better, and some and, and things do get better at different times in different places. Deep in that liberal worldview, and I would say even worse in the neo the neocon worldview, which believed you know we could ex we that's in the Americans and and their friends could export democracy in around the world, was the idea you know we, we'll create these structures we'll 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 
create democracy, we'll have them vote, and it'll be lovely. But no, they never dealt with the problem, which it seemed to me was, the oh, what happens if the wrong people win the election? They never seemed to be willing to countenance the fact that exactly what we would consider to be the wrong people would win the election. Now, it seems to be the case that in, in Gaza, we have what is has been sarcastically called the, the pattern of our democracy, which is you have, you have an election and then that's the first election is also the last election. So Hamas win the election. What do you do then? Well, you decide that uh, we've had enough elections and you never have another one. <laughs> yeah. That was Hamas's approach. That was Hamas's approach. And a very, very sensible one it was too for Hamas. I can absolutely see the appeal. You know, you do it once, you win. What other questions are there? You know, you got it right. Why try again? Why would... yeah, you can't improve upon perfection. No, you, you got the thing right. So, but just to take it away from the, the inevitable consequence of you and me sitting here together talking and solving the problems of how Israel is going to create security for itself in the next 50 years, just to bring it back to a little bit to the reaction to the pogrom uh, in, the, in the media and over here. One of the things that I find really odd, I mean, there have been many, many things that I have had statements that I have looked at and had to read three or four times and check that this actually is the person saying this, that is, it, purport, it purports to be. But one of the things I just cannot get my head around is, right, okay, let's agree that you are somebody who thinks that Israel is deeply complicit in human rights violations in really bad acting both within the state and without the state towards the before the towards the people in the west bank towards people in gaza let's allow that you have deep sympathy for the people uh, that we call palestinians and their right to aspire to their own state to self-governance to freedom and all of that right hamas how can you even allowing it, how can you look at what Hamas is and say, well, yeah, okay, they are the legitimate expression of the political will of the Palestinian people in the Gaza, so we are going to support them. That I don't get. That's the same as saying, and I'm going to break all the rules here, Gary. I don't care. I'm breaking my own rules. That is basically the same as saying in 1933, I'd say if there had been another election in 1938, these guys in Germany are the legitimate expression of the, of, the, of the democratic will of the German people. And we have to respect that. I think, Michael, that that's a, actually a perfectly fair argument. <laughs> the problem, I think, is that people assume the democratic will is good. Whereas often, you know, Michael, people are just animals. Shaved apes. They're highly aware Not animals. Not to be too rude about apes, but there you go. But I think one of the problems we have in the West is because we are so safe and so secure and so distant from nature, we've lost sight of what people actually are and what people are capable of when they're put under stress. So, yeah, I, I don't find the idea that the democratic will could lead to millions of people being murdered in a systematic fashion terribly surprising. Nor do I think that you need to blame someone as opposed to saying yeah that's probably what those people wanted to happen because that's what people are and they're tribalistic and they're willing to do most things as long as they don't have to do it directly yeah as long as you can keep some kind of distance and by the way it turns out that sometimes a lot of them are 
don't have to be that distant for it, really. You know, they're willing to get fairly close. Did you see uh, Michal Martin's comments on it? Oh, I did. I did. That what we didn't want here was an Old Testament reaction. Oh, sweet Jesus. I said to you before, it reminded me of a quote which is attributed to Jimmy Carter, which may or may not be in fact true. But when Carter was playing an important role in bringing Menachem Begum and Anwar Sadat together to uh, achieve the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, he, he said something to the effect of he couldn't see why we couldn't just sit down together and talk about this like decent Christians. <laughs> and it very much had that of, oh, really? We don't want Old Testament? Oh, God. Michal, please. It's hard to imagine that. It's hard to imagine, Gary. And if you were Israeli or Jewish, it would be hard to imagine that that wasn't actually a calculated insult. Michal Martin is not a stupid man. He is, in fact, a man with some kind with a, with with some kind of a degree, or maybe even a master's degree in history. He has some awareness of the language that he uses. How is it possible? I mean, that will have that will have gone through a series of drafts. It will have been looked at by members of his department in, the, in the foreign affairs. Somebody will have looked at. Has, did nobody say, "Oh, oh, I, mm, in the Old Testament." Uh, some people don't call it the Old Testament. They just call it the Testament. And they might find that a bit offensive. If you enjoyed that, I think you might enjoy McCarthy's comments on it. He was talking about it in the doll, about the EU response. And he said, We do not need an Old Testament approach to this, but rather a New Testament approach. <laughs> yeah, that's Jimmy Carter all over again. For those who are not aware of this joke, it is because the... Old Testament is effectively the um, Torah, the holy book of the Jewish people. It is It is the Bible. As I say, I mean, for the Jews, there isn't a New Testament. It's just the Testament. And that's what, yeah, God, really. Other comments that I found, uh, we, we won't get into the, the political stuff. I mean, the explicit political stuff, because there's too much of it. But I'm sure you saw as well as I did, Gary, on the RTE News website, the report of that unfortunate young woman that was murdered in the pogrom, uh, whose name escapes me now, who was an Irish citizen, and it was reported that it was it, that she had she has died. I mean, it's, it is genuinely bizarre language. I, I I I would, I'm certainly not going to do it. Somebody like Gary might do this, but to go back through all the various reports throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s about in the north of Ireland or wherever with the IRA or the INLA or the the UVF or whoever uh, terrorist killings the number of times that somebody was reported uh, uh, that they have died or they died rather than were killed were murdered whatever by the, the by the IRA by the UVF it I thought what what's going on there has died I mean, it, it's such an awkward way of, of expressing it, Gary. It's hard to imagine that it wasn't a conscious choice of language. And if it was a conscious choice of language, well, what was the point of it? What was the message? What was the thinking behind that? Here, I want to throw this at your head before we finish up, because we're approaching the hour. I've been talking to a number of friends, and one of the things we all agreed on is that uh, this bizarre polarization of reaction 
that we have seen in the mainstream media and on social media, where the reluctance of people on the left, especially on the further left, to just come out with a straight unalloyed condemnation of the act. I mean, not even that, but straight bang actually justifying it, almost praising it at times. And then on the right, except obviously, shall we say, the very far right, generally speaking, has been the reaction has been very, very pro-Israel, supportive, condemnatory, absolutely unacceptable. And it's this strange thing where on the right, you've got this sort of philo-Semitic pro-Israel stance, and on the left, it's this weird inversion. And, the only explanation I can come up with is that because of the history of the 20th century and, and beyond that, that conservatives are maybe more phobic, more sensitive about the issue of anti-Semitism and violence, anti-Semitic violence and violence against Jews, that they tend to, re they, 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 they react more strongly Whereas on the left, they find it very hard to imagine that they could be, in any sense, bigoted or, or, or prejudiced or allies with people who have that kind of deep historical bigotry. And therefore, they don't recognize it because they don't see it as part of their cultural heritage, their political heritage. And so you produce, it produces this weird outcome where you have the right being philosemitic and pro-Israel and the left, which historically would have been, it was on the left where it was the people on the left, it was the communists who came out to, to attack the, the black shirts when they marched through the east end of London. Uh, it would have been the, traditionally it would have been the left would have been in defense of people who were minorities, defense of Jewish rights, minority rights, that kind of thing. So do you think there's anything to that, 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 that the reason that the people who are more, are, the conservatives have, be, because of our experience of what's happened on the right, we are a little bit more, uh, we have a, a, a greater sensibility to this? Uh, possibly. I think it's worth noting that the views of the left on Israel have changed over the course of Israel's existence. Absolutely. Uh, quite substantially, actually. Or is it? Is it okay? I'll give it throw. Sorry, I'll, I'm interrupting, but just throw in the other possibility that it's actually simpler than that. That Israel is an ally of the United States, and the United States is an ally of Israel, and therefore we don't have to ask any more questions because the United States is the great Satan. Anybody who's a friend of the United States or is friend or is, a, is if, with whom the United States is friendly is wrong, and whoever's against them is right. I think there's an element of that amongst the more political left, like people poor profits, foreign policy effectively seems to be, if you're against America, then you are good. I think part of it might come down to when you do psychometric testing of people, people who tend to be more conservative and more to the right tend to be much more comfortable with hierarchies and things of that nature. And people on the left tend to prioritize empathizing with people they view as oppressed. Yes. And I think there is an element of that, that these people view the uh, Palestinians um, as oppressed and therefore don't hold them to the same moral standard 
that they would hold people to normally. And I think you can see that in a lot of progressive views, like progressive views on race. I would say, despite the fact that they tend to say they're anti-racist, are actually startlingly racist in their connotations. They infantilize the people yeah. that they are yeah. dealing with and say that anything negative that comes out of minority or oppressed communities is actually a fault of the society rather than of the people themselves, which is immensely disempowering of those people. And I think you see that with Hamas as well. You see a lot of people saying that the violence that they have done is effectively not their fault. Yeah. Or not violence at all, which is bizarre to see from people who think that words are violence, but, you know, this isn't an element of that. Um, It's always hard to ascribe the motives for things uh, because I don't think most people understand why they feel the way they do on most topics. There is a, a deep black comedy to the sight of people who two weeks ago would have called you and me Nazis for saying that uh, somebody is not a woman, that they're a man. But but when they go on a pogrom saying we want that let's kill all the Jews and is we will be free from the river to the sea. Uh, well, you know, that's, that's, you know, when speech is violence, but violence is speech, that kind of thing. It, it, it's kind of, tough to get your head around that uh, one thing before we go because again the other thing that struck me about shall we say the reportage of this is how genuinely sad it is to see the demise of the sense of trust that people can have in the mainstream media and the newspapers or whatever because it has meant that increasingly particularly younger people are are, are fleeing to the internet to social media to places like Twitter and whatever, to get their news. And the problem is, Gary, it's so hard to work out what the hell you're looking at. Because leaving aside the, the debates about whether photographs were real or whether they weren't, so it was AI or if they were true, whether or not, oh, well, you know, they, you, you give an example, which we won't repeat, about you know, people just saying, oh, it might, it might have been this, it could have been that, which was just horrific. From a personal perspective, one of the things I've always found just what are you on is the sight of young LGBTQIA people behind Palestinian flags. And I saw a protest yesterday, which was uh, Queers for Palestine. And knowing the fact that there are estimated to be something like, what, 300 Palestinians in the last few years who have been given asylum in Israel because they were gay and felt that there were, their lives were at actual risk, which is not an, not an imaginary fear. We have seen a number of people from our fr- friends on the left saying, actually, ah, this is all nonsense. And I, Wilfred Riley, who's a man I follow on, 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 on Twitter, who I enjoy, quoted uh, a tweet which was in response to another tweet saying basically oh it's all overstated yes there is homophobia in the middle east but actually it's, it, you, you're not at any real risk and somebody tweeted out exactly lgbt people are much safer in gaza than in florida or texas for instance now gary when i looked at that i i thought no that that's uh, that has to be that's a parody account that has to be satire. That is somebody ladling on sac- sarcasm, but with no emoticon there to tell us that it is just a funny joke. And I went through their Twitter, and at the end of it, after looking through 
200 tweets and posts and whatever. I still have no idea whether that is actually serious or not. And the problem is that there are plenty of other tweets like it, which I am certain are in fact serious. Of people say, oh no, it's fine, it's grand over there, it's wildly overstated. And I, 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 there is something deep inside me which wants somebody to go and set up a group for uh, uh, LGBT and non-binaries, a, a drop-in centre in Gaza, when everything is settled down. I mean, not when the war is going on, but afterwards. And then see how they get on. Because I think it might be a learning experience for all the people involved. Yeah, just like it was for the PLO members when Hamas took over. Yes, that was a learning experience, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they didn't seem to see that one coming either. No. Bullets travel very quickly. Um, yes, on, on people believing either nothing or everything about this, I was uh, tweeting out about the uh, claim that came out that uh, children had been decapitated in one of the areas which Hamas had attacked. Yes. And I tweeted out, and then I... I think I said during it that, you know, it's been claimed. And then journalists said that they had seen certain things. They came out and said that they had confirmed it. So tweeted saying journalists are now saying this. But while I was tweeting that out, I was absolutely aware that a claim like that could absolutely be incorrect. Yes. As any other claim can be. But the thing is, there is a point you have to draw as to what is reasonable and what you can put forward and saying, listen, this is being claimed and what you shouldn't put forward at all. And I think people, a lot of people are at a point where if the side they do not support says something, they will just not believe it. So Benjamin Netanyahu's office tweeted out some photos of what appeared to be dead children um, because people were claiming it didn't happen. And then people started claiming that actually some of the photos were AI generated. And then other people were saying, well, no, but what's happening is one of the photos has, you know, code on it. And yeah. or it's you can run it through a checker yeah. and it, yeah, it's, it's pulling that up. And if you take that out, actually, it says it's real. But that is the nature of, of the distrust here. And fundamentally, I don't think anyone was convinced either way by those photos. The people who would look at that and say it's not real, were not going to be convinced. And the people who already believed it was real didn't make any difference to them either. Yes. It just depends on who you trust. And frankly, I think the damage that the mainstream media has done with its own per standard of reporting and the damage that politicians have done by being unwilling to accurately discuss certain things in society, mm -hmm. they come home to roost at times like this. Yes. Because the people who should be trustworthy, who you could look at and they would say, oh, we verified this. And this is absolutely what happened are no longer trusted to do these things. Yes. At, at which point, how do you figure out what's real and what isn't? Putting aside the question of, of photos or videos or things like that, the raw question of what is actually happening here is now incredibly difficult. And one of the other problems we have is that there is an apparatus designed to counter what they call misinformation and disinformation. But... Most of it is designed to counter what they think of as right-wing or populist, more accurately, disinformation or misinformation. So even that apparatus is totally unable to deal with something like this, where a lot of it is more aligned to people on the left. Yes. Or at least certain aspects of it are. Now, 
I don't suspect that either side in this would have any issue putting forward something that isn't true. I do trust that if the Israelis were going to do it, they would be careful about who said what and who, what exactly they said. It's a war. You shouldn't trust mindlessly any person. I mean, I saw one of uh, an Irish NGO worker who works for the um, Hope and Courage Collective yes. putting up a tweet about how the entirety of the time he's been alive, he doesn't think he's ever seen an IDF spokesperson say one truthful word and then mindlessly retweeting things from Palestinian authorities. Like, you're going to be sceptical. Be sceptical of everyone because everyone here has an interest in presenting this in a particular way. Yes. And just because you, you fall on one side, you view one side as being right or superior or whatever, doesn't mean you have to mindlessly believe what they are saying because all of these people would lie to you. And if they wouldn't lie to you, well, that actually reflects badly on them because you're going to be willing to slaughter other people you should be willing to lie. Yeah. Because that's way down there on the moral chart. We had the same thing with Ukraine. When people were like, would the Ukrainians lie about things for propaganda value? And I'm like, yeah, obviously they would. Of course they would. It they would be should. weird if they wouldn't. Absolutely. Bizarre. You're going to say, well, well, we accept the fact that they may, have been, they may have killed some women and children, all right. But God, they wouldn't lie. He wouldn't do that. Yeah. And this is the point where you would have a functioning media. Another problem here for the media is that a lot of them don't have the foreign staff that they used to. So you're dealing with people who just don't really know the areas a lot of the time and maybe deeply biased in one way or the other. I don't think bias is a bad thing as long as you know where their bias is and they try and present things fairly. But anyway, I think that's a that's enough for today. I think we will let the. I, I suspect that this may still be a story next week. So anyway, we will be back on next Sunday. Will we be? You're, I know you're going away. Will we be back? No, no, I'll be back. You'll be back. Gary's on his travels again, working hard for the people, trying to make us free. So far, he hasn't done much about it, but you know, we'll give him some time. Yes, well, you know, Michael, when you work with politicians, you take what you get. <laughs> Which is not much, usually. Anyway, have a good one. All the best.